Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tell Me More. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Meyer. On the show, we break down some of the worst conversations in healthcare. Why? Because I believe that together we can build better ones. everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Tell Me More, Better Conversations in Healthcare. I am talking to patients who have had really bad conversations in the course of their healthcare journeys with the singular focus of trying to teach people how to have better ones on both sides, patients and healthcare workers, professionals like myself. Um, so I've had the opportunity to talk to many, many people uh, in the life of this podcast, and every story is different. Every story teaches me something. But my guest today has such a unique story and such a motivational outcome, if you will, that I'm just super excited to have her. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So we're going to have this conversation today about Lots of things, but to just give people background, um, you have survived five different cancer diagnoses, right? Yes, you've had five, uh, two skin cancers, two breast cancers, and a thyroid cancer, correct? Right? Oh yep. my god, I say that and I feel like I'm ordering off of like a takeout menu. <laughs> what? Like that just does not seem like numbers. I would not I recommend be... this restaurant. FYI. <laughs> no. God. So t- just tell me about that. You know, how old were you when you first got your first diagnosis and, and that journey? It's so funny. I, it like, I imagine a lot of parents on the listening in will understand. I I age everything by the age of my children, right? And so my daughter and son were toddlers. They were babies um, when I had my first breast cancer. I'm sorry, my first cancer, my melanoma. Um, My son was one and my daughter was three. And it was only caught because my mom was being such a nag. We were Mm. at the pool and my baby, my one-year-old son was having a nap on me. And I was in this really contorted position trying to kind of like hold him so that he wouldn't slip and fall off because we were both all sweaty. But like, you know, when it's your last kid and you know, I better enjoy this nap because it's going to go away soon. And my mom noticed this mole on my upper thigh. And I don't know that like that part of my thigh would have been so in her face had I not been this like really weird contorted position. And she didn't like the look of it and kept saying, go to the dermatologist, go to the dermatologist. And I blew her off. Like, cause that's what we do. Daughters do. Yep. Right. Yep. And, um, and eventually she nagged me enough that I just to get her to shut up already. I went to the <laughs> dermatologist and it turns out that that was melanoma. Wow. And the dermatologist called on, um, I remember it was like the Tuesday after 4th of July weekend. She said, okay, we got your biopsy back and that mole is melanoma. It's too large for Mohs surgery. You're, we're going to make an appointment with you for you with a surgeon. I don't care when it is and what's on your calendar. You need to go to that appointment. And it was very chilling. Like it was mm-hmm. one of those, your life she is was alarmed. to be on hold. Yeah. And so between Tuesday and uh, being diagnosed on Tuesday, I had surgery Friday. Like that's mm-hmm. how fast that went. Mm-hmm. And it was my first cancer. So I didn't know anything like, from my point of view. That was how all cancers <laughs> were supposed to go. Um, and it was crazy. You know, basically as I understood it, had the cancer spread, I would have less than a year to live. And if it didn't spread, no big deal. Wear more sunscreen. Like, oh, Wow. Right. That's that's a whiplash, right? Like that's a lot. So, all right. I want to talk about that conversation, that first conversation, Um, because you've never had someone call you and tell you had cancer. So uh, you had the biopsy. How long did it take from when you had the biopsy to when you got the call with the results? It was a long weekend. I want to say that the biopsy was the prior Friday and then it was like a 4th of July holiday weekend. So it was, I don't remember exactly where it was, but then that Tuesday was when I got the call. And I honestly wasn't, I just wasn't worried about it. It was a mole. I have freckles. Like I just, I, I did not spend time that particular weekend agonizing over that biopsy, I kind of forgot about it, you know, Ah, other than it was annoying mm -hmm. that I couldn't go swimming because I had a hole in my leg, right? Like that was it. 
I don't so, know. Right. I'm more focused so, on like the fireworks plans and yeah. you know, all of that the stuff. Kids. Like, yeah. Right, right, right. Right. So um so that's a very important piece, right? Because you know, a lot of times in these stories, the frustration begins with this delay. Like yes. you have something done and then you are like agonizing over the results and it takes forever to get the call, right? But but that's not the issue here. You get a call. It was no. it the doctor the doctor that did the biopsy herself that called you? Yes. And again, I'm so dumb. I don't know any better. I don't know that that's bad. <laughs> when the doctor picks up the phone, you know, oh, yes. crap, this is not good news, right? Yes. So, yes. Um, yeah. But so to be fair, how? the surgeon who did the surgery um, to do the removal and also the lymph node biopsy um, in my groin, which by the way, zero out of 10, do not recommend. Um, oh, God. That sucked. Um, she called, she said, and she, and to her credit that Friday had the surgery. Um, she called, she said, I will call you at two o'clock on Monday with these results. So we knew when that call was coming, there was no, like, you know, so so my husband was like sitting around, we were just sitting around looking at the phone at exactly two o'clock. She called, it was all clear. We had a big celebration. It was fine. So, um, and you know, then I went online and spent $8 million on you, you know, the, what is it? The, um, the, uh, the sunscreen shirts and the, you know, and sunscreens and hats and, you know, long sleeve swimwear for my children. And I mean, I just became like a sun freak for that, that summer, that summer I I was a little, a little overboard. I've calmed down since then. Justifiably so. Yeah. So, so I obviously great news, the second conversation, but when you first heard you had cancer, um, what, how was the demeanor of that doctor? Was it like very no nonsense? Cause off air, you were telling me that you were like, it was like, you're doing this, right. Was her take. I'm going to schedule an appointment for you and you're going to go. So tell me a little bit about that. So Hi, Liz. This is Dr. So-and-so. I have your biopsy results. Was it like, are you sitting down? Was it like, is somebody with you? Like, how did that conversation go? No, no, nothing like that. In fact, if anything, I was thinking in the back of my mind how dangerous it was. I was driving and wow. Mm -hmm. And she said it it was, and it was exactly like you said, hi, this is, uh, you know, doctor, I forget her name. And um, we got your biopsy results. Now I need to tell you, it came back positive for melanoma. This is a fast moving cancer. So what I need you to do, we were going to set you up and it's too large for a Mohs surgery. So we can't do it here in our office. It needs to be removed as soon as possible. We're going to make an appointment with a surgeon for you. I know that you're busy and you're, you work full time. I was an executive at um, a finance company at that time. And she, and I think she knew that. Um, and so whatever is on your calendar, you need to change it. Like, I will let you know when this is. And so I got to the office and the first thing I did, of course, was, well, after that phone call, I called my husband, called my mother, you know, freaking out. And the, um, and we, um, got, you know, started, um, doing all the research. In fact, the fun story about my mom is I called my mother. She was literally, on a plane, boarding a plane to go to China to visit my dad, who was on this long-term assignment when she heard that I had melanoma and that, you know, at some point in the next week I would have surgery. She turned to the stewards and said, I need to get off the plane. And this is oh, after 9-11 where, you know, it was once you're on the plane, they don't let you off. And I don't know what she did or said, but she got off the plane. And, oh um, God. and so she stayed with us and it was, unbelievable like I think about that all the time that um having her around especially that weekend when we were waiting for the biopsy results that weekend was really tense but the Mm -hmm. beauty is my mom was there constantly and the kids are just little babies they're little need machines they don't understand what's going on and I do think that like the everydayness of baths and books and stories and snacks like all of the little kid stuff was mm-hmm. wonderful because it is a distraction from yeah. obsessing over what if, what if, what if. Um, and right. I do think like there's something lovely about that whole four day process is that there wasn't as much, it was as much time spent on the operational challenges of doctor's appointments, rearranging my 
business schedule, rearranging my work and my staff to cover things that I wasn't going to be there for the following week. Like just all of the operational challenges, childcare, all of those things sucked up all of the air in the room such that it was a, it was a blur. Like I remember the phone call and I remember waking up from surgery and that time in between is just sort of like, like, you know, when you see a cartoon and it's like, yeah. you know, and you see like the, <laughs> the whoosh sounds like that's how it was in my head. It just went so fast because when you go from, you have cancer on Tuesday to surgery on Friday, um, you know, as you can imagine. And, and when I'm the, you know, when you're two working parents, it just gets complicated, you know, really right. fast. Right. So right. the operations so two- of being out for the count post-surgery were as time consuming, right, as the obsessing over. And don't get me wrong. I spent plenty of time on Google <laughs> searching yeah, yeah. for all this yeah. stuff. And that helped. And, the, you know, and I'm my process is I like to know. I like to understand. Um I think that there are two different kinds of patients out there. You tell me, you're the doctor, but I think there's one kind of patient that wants to understand and participate in their healthcare management. And there's one that just wants to be told what to do. And I am the former. I don't like being told what to do. I want to, yeah. I'm, I want, I, it's my team. <laughs> I am a member of this team, right? Like I'm not, I'm not looking for a dictator. I want, right. you know, I want a partner. And, right. um, and I think that, during this first cancer, I didn't understand those differences. And it wasn't till I got to my next cancer that I did, if that makes sense. This one would just went by so fast. You said so many important things there, Liz. Um, so you're right, exactly. There are two different kinds of patients. Uh, but in my experience, nowadays, mm-hmm. it's much more the former and yeah. very few patients are like of that just tell tell me what to do i think there is something about efficiency in a healthcare plan that's really really important so you know uh i hate it when doctors say to patients like what do you want to do like what do you think well yeah. uh i'm sorry i'm I am not a doctor. That's why I have right, you. Yes. Right. So nobody really wants that. Um, but also nobody, well, most of my patients at least don't appreciate the, here's what you're going to do and go do it. So it sounds to me like this first conversation, when you got the melanoma diagnosis, like you got efficiency for sure. Yes. You got, um, you very much understood, you know, the gravity of the situation. Like you are, you cannot mess around with this. You need to do it now. Um, you got a very clear plan of care. There wasn't like, go, maybe you could do this or maybe you could do that. But you also didn't get any, uh, it doesn't sound like you had any opportunity for, you know, conversation, like back and forth. And doesn't sound at all like you got any like, hey, you're going to be okay, but here's what we have to do. I did not get that at all. I got the, the most, this is a fast moving cancer. The most important thing is to get it out as soon as possible. After it's out, we can talk about what comes next. It Mm -hmm. was that whole week was just about get it out as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so make sure that you got through all the pre-op, all everything, all the, you know, insurance authorization. I mean, all of that stuff had to be done as soon as possible to cut it out as soon as humanly possible. Waiting was not an option. And that that was the message that I got. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, it was actually what I thought was so crazy is after all of this intense, get it out, it's so important. Once it was out and it hadn't spread, there was nothing. Like, okay, fine, go back to normal. Well, how does one go back to normal right. after being told, Oh, well, you might die, but you might not. (laughs) So, you know, that, that was really, really hard. It took me, it took, I never, I never really got over that because 11 months later I was diagnosed with my second cancer. Oh my God. All right. So tell me about that. So, uh, so less than a year later, less than a year later, I went in. So my mom is a breast cancer survivor. And so I started doing mammograms early and it was, I think only my second mammogram went in and they saw something a little bit weird and I had to go back for a biopsy. So when you go for a breast biopsy, um, 
you know, they, everyone's feeling your boobs. Like you just, I'm so used to this now, but in the moment it's a little awkward and the breast surgeon is her fingers are, you know, all on their boobs. And then they start scrolling up to my neck and she starts feeling around my neck and she's like, "Mm, there's something there I don't like. So she, I had absolutely. So at that time it was a two for one. I had two biopsies that day, one in the breast and one in my thyroid. And it turns out the breast biopsy at that time was a nothing. It was, you know, abnormal cells, like something, nothing to worry about the, um, but in the neck, it was thyroid cancer. And I had absolutely no, I presented with absolutely no side effects. Like I had no reason to have thyroid cancer. And so I thought, oh gosh, okay, well it's Wednesday. Do do I have surgery Friday? Like, and, (laughs) and I learned very quickly that thyroid is a very slow growing cancer, that you have a lot of options. They want you to do a bunch of labs ahead of time. My surgery didn't even get scheduled for two months until after that. And like, so the idea, like that was very stressful to me at the time because of all the rush of the last one Mm. being told there's no big deal. Eventually we'll get to it. Hang tight was very unsettling. Like this idea that I was walking around with cancer and nobody was doing anything about it was very stressful to me. Hmm. Um, But it was a gift because it gave me time to plan. So then it wasn't like this like crazy, reckless, I'm out of the office with no plan. You know, it's like there was, I had time and I could work it out and we rearranged my son's birthday party and, you know, like all this stuff that was you know, we could we could organize and and I think again in retrospect it was a gift it was a gift that I had all that extra time to get organized and planned. The downside is it was a ter- it ended for something that was supposed to be a really standard super easy surgery. I think that twenty percent of women over thirty get thyroid cancer. Like it's super super wow. common. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to keep me honest on I, that number, but it's like, it's I don't know that statistic, but it doesn't sound that far off to me. Honestly, it is. Yeah. So, um, so go ahead. So, but the post-op was not. I great. fell into this teeny, teeny, tiny category. Um, this happened is a side effect that I wasn't even aware of because I don't think anyone even warned me about it because it happens to 2% of patients. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's, I became what's called hypoparathyroid. As a oh, result, they took your parathyroids out and you got they low didn't. calcium. They didn't. Oh. So they did. No, they took the thyroid out and then they even checked because I ultimately what happened is I became hypoparathyroid. There were no parathyroid glands in the dissection. In, the, in fact, that was one of the things the surgeon was so worried that he had nicked my parathyroid gland and he caused it. And there's absolutely nothing. I think they just were sensitive and got breathed on wrong. I don't really know. Um, <laughs> yeah. But whatever the case is, they released me from the hospital and my I was having a little bit of signs of hypoparathyroidism. Like, you know, my lips were a little numb. My fingers were a little bit numb, but they said that's pretty common. I got um, home. Wait, pause for one second, Liz, because yeah. I think this is really important to just bring people up to speed who may not understand yeah. the whole parathyroid thing. So everybody yeah. knows about their thyroid, uh, lives in your neck. It controls lots of things, including your metabolism, temperature regulation. It's important, not life or death important, like you can supplement thyroid hormones and you'll be okay, but it's important. Um, geographically, the parathyroid glands, they're called parathyroid simply because they live in, embedded in, or very close to the thyroid gland. And so it is not uncommon for, you know, when someone has their entire thyroid removed for the parathyroid glands to either come out with them Um or be kind of shocked by the disruption in the environment or be injured. Um, the issue is they regulate your calcium levels and low calcium can have a lot of very, very serious medical consequences. Um, side effects that I'm sure you're going to tell us about this, but they also affect your heart rhythms and your muscles and like so many things. So this is a big deal. So mm-hmm. you go home, you're not aware that anything is wrong with your parathyroids. And what happened? No, if anything, it was like the worst night ever in the hospital. It was a shared room. And I had this terrible roommate that was, she was in a lot of pain and constantly complaining and people coming in and out. And I, you know, and I actually asked for earplugs so I could sleep. Mm-hmm. Like it was just, I couldn't wait to get out of there. It was, it was, I felt fine other than just a little bit of this numbness, which they said was normal and that eventually would recover. Well, I got home and a couple hours later, 
the numbness was traveling up my hands and through my face. And so I called and said, you know, this numbness is getting more extreme. Is this normal? And I explained it and they said, get to at the ER immediately. We'll meet you there. And they had to put me on IV calcium. Now it's so rare. It's not like any ER has a bag of calcium sitting around waiting for an IV. So there was literally a nurse standing there with a syringe and she was the human IV bag until they could get one set. And so I ended up on IV calcium for a week while they tried to figure out how to regulate my calcium without a parathyroid gland. And so because, you know, the way that I think about this is synthroid, uh, because uh, thyroid cancer is so common, the synthetic thyroid hormone or, you know, synthroid is the medication. I I think I've read this that um, in lab studies, they sometimes can't even tell the difference between synthetic thyroid hormone and regular thyroid hormone. It's so good. Mm-hmm. It's such mm-hmm. a good alternative. Molecule. But, yep. Um, but the um, hypoparathyroid, there is no great alternative for that because it's right. so rare. It's not well studied. There's not a lot of money in pharmaceuticals, right. To, you know, create right. drugs for it. And right. so it was a huge amount of trial and error. And like the worst night ever in the hospital was when, I mean, there were multiple things that were terrible. One was they put me in the um, heart unit, but again, hypoparathyroidism, super rare. The nursing staff wasn't familiar with it. I felt myself going into hypoglycemic shock. They told, I, and I could feel it traveling up my arms. I told the nurse and she said, well, your doctor's in surgery. He'll be out in a couple hours. I'll call him then. And I was like, are you sure about that? And then like, and then I was to the point where my hands were inoperable. My face was all like stuck. I'm like using my risk to hit the nurses thing until finally someone else came in and said, this isn't normal. And I later, and they called the doctor out of surgery. And later I heard him yelling at her in the hallway um, about, yeah, she, she got, she, she went in trouble. <laughs> yeah. For, right. Because she didn't give it the attention that it deserved. Obviously. He said, if anything changes, pull me out of surgery. I, things were changing. She did. He didn't, she was uncomfortable pulling him out of surgery. I mean, whatever. I'm fine. I'm here, but it was, it was terrible. And so I went to hypoglycemic shock a lot. The, that process was a, I started to learn the, the early trigger factors, knowing when I needed more calcium and the minute that I could feel it traveling my fingers, they would shoot up more calcium and eventually it would go away. Um, but being connected to an IV calcium is not sustainable. <laughs> you got to right. get off of that. And so they had, you know, they found a drug called um, calcitriol, which is a vitamin D derivative that mm-hmm. helped in, in really large doses, along with large doses of calcium and taking Tums all the time, got me weaned off of the IV calcium to the point where they felt like I was, you know, they could send me home safely. And that was 10 days. That was a long time to be in the hospital. It was a really, really long time. So in the course of that, tell me about, did you have any good or bad conversations in that? I mean, obviously the nurse blowing you off was not good. That threw me for a loop. The, um, that whole process, you know, I was supposed to do radioactive iodine treatment as a result of, you know, after the thyroidectomy. And um, now I learned I'm asking about every single possible side effect known to man, because if I fall into these like teeny little categories, I'm terrified, right, of anything else. And they said, I said, what are my odds of recurrence? Well, your odds of thyroid cancer coming back are about 2%. What are the odds of any side effects coming from radioactive iodine treatment? Well, that's about 5%. And I was like, peace out. I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm just not. It's, it's simple math. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, oh my God. two is what lower than five. I will yes. live with that. What are some other things we can do? And so I signed up for quarterly blood tests instead of annual blood tests, which to me is no big deal. And mm-hmm. to me, this is where I started to learn to take better control of saying, okay, well, I'm not going to do this treatment because I don't, I'm terrified of the side effects. And I also really didn't like this idea that I would be personally radioactive for some unknown period of time. And I had two right. little at home, you know, my right. kids were at this right. point two and four. And I was right. just, did, I hated that whole idea. So I, I walked out, I refused treatment on that. And at the time, even my surgeon didn't even fight me on it. He said, you know, I understand. And 
I think that that's a reasonable result. The catch became trying to get my meds normalized because now I'm on, I need to not just treat my lack of thyroid, right? I need to treat my lack of parathyroid glands Mm -hmm. and getting this thyroid, synthroid, synthetic thyroid and um, parathyroid gland meds to work together to keep me normal took a year. And in that year, I was suffering terribly from clinical fatigue. And I, you know, at the time, it's really hard to know what's normal tired and what's clinical fatigue tired, right? You know, you've gone through babies not sleeping through the night. And I thought, you know, my babies, I wasn't this tired when my kids weren't sleeping through the night. Something is medically wrong with me. And I went Mm -hmm. to my endocrinologist at the time and and I explained that to him. I'm like, this doesn't feel right. And he said, "Mm, you're a working mom. Working moms are always tired. And he blew me off. And I thought, I am telling you through my words (laughs) that this is not normal tired. Like this feels like, I feel like there's a weight on my back. I can't move as fast. My eyes are droopy. Like something is wrong. And he's like, well, your labs look great. See you in in Mm -hmm. in three months. And I just thought, this is not how this should go. And mm-hmm. I, in the back of my head, I thought, all right, dude, you're fired. But I didn't say that out loud. <laughs> I wasn't that brave. I am. Um, but when they asked me if I wanted to make a follow-up appointment on my way out, and I said, oh, I'll give you a call. Like just, you know, I needed to leave. And I started looking for alternative endocrinologists in the area. And lo and behold, it turns out that getting into, and so it, I asked for lots of referrals. Again, you learn. Okay. So I got to find out, I don't just go to the endocrinologist that I got assigned to as a result of this surgery. You actually ask around and you get feedback from other people. And I got feedback and boy, did I hear that there was one particular endocrinologist who is the best in Kansas City. So I'm like, great, pick up the phone. They're like, great, we can make you an appointment in 12 months. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so oh God. I was like, well, that sucks. All right, put me on your wait list. And in the meantime, I need to figure something else out. And so a girlfriend of mine, this is like where I started to learn this kind of balance between Western medicine and Eastern medicine, right? I a hundred percent Western medicine, right? I'm not walking away from like synthetic thyroid hormones and other stuff, but at the same time, I have all these side effects. Something has to get better. And so I went to, and so my girlfriend at the time had, was telling me about this MD, she was an MD, but oh, had a, a med spa And she mostly helped women with weight loss and other kinds of things, but she also did Botox and she was experimenting with Botox for people with migraines. And it was such an interesting, and again, this was like 15 years ago. And at the time it was cutting edge. I think it's more common now where very common. Yeah. Very common. She Mm -hmm. was one of the first people, at least in our area in Kansas city that was doing it. And so my friend Jenny said, you know, go see her. She's like this alt queen. You can complain to her about the fatigue, see what she has to say. Like can't hurt. So I went to her and she looked at my labs and said, you know, this, everything you're complaining about to me is very consistent with what I see with celiac patients. Why don't you just try quitting gluten and see what happens? Hmm. And I quit gluten. And three weeks later, I felt like I woke up and I thought, this is crazy. Like how hard would, if I had, for months I was suffering, you know, giving up bread and cookies was so such a good trade, right? Wow. For feeling good mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by the time I got in to see Dr. Hamburg, I was feeling fine, but then I was with a really good doctor who listened to me and didn't just look at the labs. And mm-hmm. I think that that's all, that's also been like, just this kind of learning. Like I understand endocrinologists kind of are more scientists, right. And that they look at, and they're looking at all these different labs and factors, but that you can't just go by the labs. I remember when I was in the hospital, them being befuddled because I was within what was considered to be normal range of calcium, but they could see me going into hypoglycemic shock. So for whatever mm-hmm. reason, my body just needs more calcium than somebody else's. I don't know why. And right. so that th- he was one of those doctors that really balanced those things. And he has said all along that I'm probably one of his healthiest and um, parath- hypoparathyroid. I mean, first of all, he doesn't have very many parathyroid patients because... <laughs> It's rare, but so rare. Has, yeah. I'm one of the most healthy. And so oh, I really do think it's because of, you know, it's about a, a, a lot of those factors that I didn't, I don't just take the meds. I also, you know, look at, I also dropped 
the um the gluten, gluten. which mm-hmm. for me was really critical so so wow so you know the thyroid is it's the condition i think where patients have the most frustration in my experience in 20 plus years of practicing medicine mm-hmm. um when it comes to this lab report thing, right? Like, and I've had episodes on this podcast specifically dedicated to hypothyroid patients who feel horrible, but have normal labs. Um, And that makes me feel so much better. (laughs) It is such a travesty in medicine because no other industry does that. You know, like, um, like if you go to a hotel and you're like, you know what? Uh, my room doesn't smell good, right? And somebody goes in there like, no, your room smells fine. You're like, yeah, but I'm the guest and I'm telling you this room doesn't smell good. Chances are, if you're in a decent place, they're going to just move you, right? They're not going to be like, have this fight with you about like, no, the room, uh, you know, objectively smells good. So I, I think we just have to, we have to, and I say this, this exact thing over and over again in my practice to people I'm training and on this podcast, like we are not in the business of treating a lab report. We're in the business of treating human beings. So if the human being is telling you, I don't feel good, you cannot hold up a piece of paper as, you know, the Holy Grail. Like, no, your piece of paper is fine. So it sounds uh, like- Amen, sister. I will <laughs> tell you, I wish more, I've learned through this whole process to find doctors that look at the piece of paper as, a component exactly. right, of the treatment. Exactly. Well, the lab doesn't say that, but if you're complaining, then let's mm-hmm. try this. I've heard that. Right. Those are the doctors. And I definitely have met with doctors said, well, the lab says this. So, so it's all right. So two very different endocrinology <laughs> yeah. conversations. And then I do want to get to at least one of your breast cancer diagnoses. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Tell me so an important little, story I about that. Quickly go through very quickly, this is, again, it's all a learning, right? So now I learned to advocate, you know, that after these first two back-to-back cancers, I learned to advocate for myself. I learned that there's a real difference that all endocrinologists, right, are not built equal, which means, which also went to, oh, all doctors aren't built equal. Like this whole idea that there's a certain amount of art as science and science that goes mm-hmm. into medical practice was a big aha, like that, like, blew my mind. And mm-hmm. that learning took me to the basal cell cancer. So that again, not life-threatening. It was on my nose. The first, uh, pla- and so the first plastic surgeon that I went to look at, again, it was just big enough that they had to do a bigger surgery. And, um, and it became this really tricky question as to how much of the nose skin could you take off? And then normally I think that they would take a chunk of skin from your neck and use that to like cover up what was taken off. But I, you can't see in this, um, I mean, you have good lighting, but I have a lot of freckles <laughs> and like, I couldn't have a freckle pattern. You know, you can't match the freckle pattern from my neck to my nose. I would look like I have right. a patch on my face. And so then the question became, how do you rearrange the skin to cover the missing skin? And so the first um, plastic surgeon that I went to said, well, we're going to create um, a line from the inside of your eye and we're going to follow it all along your cheekbone down to your jawline. And then that is what's going to give us the amount of movement to cover the the nose skin. And then you'll have this giant seascape shaped scar on your face. And I was like, he's like, when do you want to book your surgery? Yeah. And I was like, well, I'm good. Yeah, let me think about it. And, um, and I just didn't. And I, so again, had I not had the prior experiences, I might not have known, maybe we should talk to someone else and just, just see what else is out there. It's not fast growing. It's not melanoma. I have the, the beauty of time here. So let's just mm-hmm. figure it out. Um, and so I went and talked to a bunch of different, so then of course, you know, you employ the, the social network of tell me who the best plastic surgeon in Kansas city is and who's good with faces right? That's what I want. And I got the great name. He had this like bananas procedure where it was a two-part procedure. The first one, which I was away for, don't recommend, um, where they removed <laughs> the surgery, they removed the, um, the, you know, the cancerous part of the skin on my nose. And then like, you know, like when you got like a Thanksgiving turkey and you're like shoving the herbs yeah, in between the, the skin, the, the skin and so and I was the away muscle, while they yeah. stretched the skin over my cheekbones 
this was I obviously didn't hurt. I mean, I, have, I was numb, but I didn't like being awake for that. And then I walked around with a patch on my face for 10 days and then came back. And at that point, the skin was loose enough that they could then cover it back up. And then and that you, you the scar is very, very faint. You really can't see it to this day. Like I can cover it with concealer and it's gone. Wow. And so that was a far more complex and certainly far more painful probably than the the prior surgery. But I was all in, right? Because mm-hmm. this was the one that was going to give me, you know, a mostly scar-free face. And and that's at age 35, I didn't want to walk around with a giant scar on my face. Like who would? No one wants right. a scar in their face that large. And I thought, this is bananas. Like who would not If you don't learn to advocate for yourself and just ask questions and see are there any other options, no Mm. one's going to give them to you. Like you have to ask, you have to learn to advocate for yourself. And so that, that was really the big aha, like that. I was so proud of myself for that process. It was more of a nuisance than a medical scary moment, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Because. I was just more calm about it. I had done my homework. I found a doctor I liked. You know, all of those things make such a difference, and I think, in making and helping to recover quickly, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, completely. So, so you had yeah. two different uh, plastic surgery opinions. So the first doctor didn't necessarily tell you anything wrong. That procedure would have taken care of the problem. You're Correct. Basal cell cancer would have been gone. Yes. But it sounds like he was not very sensitive to the idea of this being on your face, that you're young and you're fair and that scarring matters. So he had the science piece, right? But maybe not the art piece. And then when you yeah. when you had the procedure, I mean, obviously, uh, and I imagine so this is me being very cynical. And I and because the, that particular practice was huge. It was just really, they have their own building. It's huge. They have a gazillion doctors. And my takeaway was that that procedure that would leave me scarred was the most efficient, that that would be a very fast surgery. He could knock out multiple of those in a day, as opposed to the much more complex, delicate two-part surgery. I would be willing to bet that insurance probably pays them the same for mm-hmm. surgery taking probably six times longer than the other guy's surgery. And that piece of our American healthcare system, I think is to me, what is so problematic mm-hmm. that, um, and, and then I can understand a doctor wanting to knock out as many as he can, you know, you could giving him the benefit of the doubt that allows him to help the most number of patients, but it's also the most profitable. And I, mm-hmm. I really, that, that was very frustrating to me. Again, no one said that to me out loud. I think that's me putting a lot of different things together. Um, But that was my takeaway. Mm -hmm. And that made me, that really disgusted me and made me want to not work with him. Right. Mm -hmm. I have much more interested in working with medical practitioners. Look, I want my doctors to make good money, right? I want them to be comfortable. They should be supported. You go through a ton of training. To, to do what you do, right? So please understand, this is not like a diatribe on doctors should make less money. But at the same time, I want to work with a doctor that will prioritize my health over the incremental revenue, you know? Right, and that right. that piece of it really just bugged me. Didn't, didn't sit well. Didn't no. sit well. And, but, and, but then you have that perspective also going into breast cancer going diagnosis? into breast cancer yeah the you know I was the first breast cancer was the ductal carcinoma in C2 it was on my left breast it was stage zero I was at that point because it was my fourth cancer I might have been more freaked out by getting diagnosed with breast cancer um at age 45 had I not had the prior cancers but because I'd had the prior cancers I learned right and so I in fact went to um I'm with multiple radiation oncologists. One of them, you know, we talk about the the numbers guy versus the not numbers person. The numbers guy was like, um, this, you know, we were talking about the, you know, post radiation. Then he wanted to see me on tamoxifen for 10 years at this particularly high dose. And I said, well, you know, I've heard that, that that's going to put me into menopause and that there's all these terrible side effects. And he said, none of those are really real. They're not medically blah, blah, blah. Like he just completely like blew me off. And I was like, 
really? So you're going to tell me that, like, I mean, I've known women on tamoxifen and I've known that they've struggled with their weight. They've struggled with emotional, you know, instability. I know that they struggle with all these things, with hot flashes, with going into menopause. And you're just going to just straight up and tell me the only thing that is, um, you know, that scientifically proven is the hot flashes. That's the only thing you'll treat. Like F off, dude. Like that's just (laughs) not. And then I met with a different radiation oncologist and I asked her, a lot of questions because ultimately I wanted to know about outcomes. I said, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I learned through this whole process was I wanted to know what are my odds of recurrence and has your study looked at women under 50? Because mm-hmm. at the time I was 45 years old and I don't want to look at studies that include 80 year olds. Like that does not, I think that we should be Apply. looking specifically at women that are better comps to me. And mm-hmm. she said, you know, that's a good question. And let me go look at it. And she was so excited by my engagement and would bring me studies and explain them to me and made copies that I could read them, you know, and she gave, she acted like a partner and that was what I needed. Probably would have done the same course of radiation with either doctor, but I did Mm -hmm. so with such a better attitude and frame of mind, right? Knowing that I had chosen it, that it was going to reduce my odds of recurrence by whatever it was. I don't remember anymore. Like I just, I felt good about the decision and feeling good about the decision for me was really critical, which Mm -hmm. takes me to then my fifth breast cancer, (laughs) fifth cancer, second breast cancer. Um, and that was, um, I have invasive, um, ductal carcinoma on my right breast. And I really wanted a lumpectomy. I did not want a mastectomy. And the, um, there was a, I won't go through all the various puts and takes, but the, the, the first, my original breast surgeon really pushed for me to do a double mastectomy. And I did not want to lose both my breasts after I'd only done lumpectomy in the left breast. I really wanted to keep my breasts. And um, so I went through lots of incremental extra tests to see, was it super necessary to take the whole breast? And it was. And so I was at peace with it. Had I done the, the mastectomy without doing that incremental test, I know myself well enough to know that I would have wondered all along, was it super yeah, necessary? Yeah, was it really necessary? Like, mm-hmm. Do I really have to do it? And so I was, re- and then when they took it, they even found more cancer in there than wow. they originally found in the, the biopsies, which made me, it put me at peace, right? That I lost it, but it was for good reason. It was riddled with tumors. That thing had to go. And the, um, so again, you just learn, right? And so that I ended up changing doctors to, I, I got three different opinions. One in um, two in Kansas City, one at MD Anderson. MD Anderson and KU Med both said, nope, single mastectomy is fine. It does not make any difference whatsoever to your outcome. And I liked those answers better. <laughs> so <laughs> I went with those. And and I also went with a younger and a younger um oncologist who acknowledged how difficult um estrogen suppression therapy is and mm-hmm. talked about all the different ways that they would help counteract it and that they weren't going to walk. They weren't going to, you know, gaslight me on tamoxifen side effects. And, and that has made all the difference, you know, again, Mm -hmm. so you learn to advocate for yourself. You learn to ask good questions, um, learning to understand odds of recurrence versus. So for example, I think that like, it was one of those things that after my, my first breast cancer, they said, okay. Tamoxifen reduces your odds of recurrence by 50%. Well, that sounds like a lot, but what are my actual odds of of recurrence? 15%. So it goes from 15 to seven. Well, that's a really different number than 50, right? And so I think that, again, just trying to understand the statistics of all these different numbers, it's really subjective. For some Mm -hmm. women, that 15% is too high. And for some women, 15% is reasonable, but Mm -hmm. it should be my decision. I'm the patient, right? And and I think that those are the, the kinds of things that, I have found my, the doctors that I've chosen to work with are so open and interested in having those conversations with me, as opposed to those that just want to crank through, um, or have a really strong point of view and don't really want to entertain any other alternatives. So, right. So, I mean, those are so, such good points. So, you know, everybody who comes on the show says advocate for yourself, but I think there's some very, you know, specific ways to do that. Um, And one way is to, you know, understand the numbers, understand the data. And not everybody, not every patient, and honestly, not every doctor has a head for that. 
But when the disease process we're talking about is so dependent on statistics, like you got to dig into the numbers. And like you said, like it's a way, if you're telling me my risk of side effects is 10%, my risk of recurrence is 2%, like that's not good math in favor of the treatment, right? Right. Um, and then and the again, other there's thing- some people that what living with that 2% recurrence is too much, too stressful, and they yeah. want the treatment, which is yeah. great. Then they've made the right choice for them. That right. And I think but it should that, be their choice. It's their choice. It's not the doctor's choice, at least right, from my right. point of view. And then the other thing I think I get from your story too is is the like take a breath and get more opinions approach. Yes. You know, like yes. when when it's medically feasible to do so. Um, I think a lot of times when patients get a scary diagnosis, like the, our instinct is, oh, let me just tell me what to do right now. I just got to get it done right now. Like totally. I totally, I want totally. this over. I want to put this behind me. Um, and you know, sometimes that's what you have to do, kind of like with your melanoma. Like probably yeah. getting that surgery a- asap was important. But in other situations, like your basal cell or your thyroid cancer, or even your uh, stage zero breast cancer, like you have a little bit of time to get a my, couple of opinions. IDC, the first question I asked was, okay, what is my deadline? How much time do I have to, to make a decision? And she gave me a date and I stuck with it. Mm-hmm. And so she gave mm-hmm. me 12 weeks, mm-hmm. which was enough, was enough. And and that gave me the the time to to decide. And so I knew, and I think that's the other piece too. Like I, I to me, if you would talk about advocating for yourself, to me, one of the best questions to ask is, okay, when do I need to make a decision by? Mm-hmm. And if you have a date, then you know, okay, I'm going to live with this uncertainty for this amount of time. And when you mm-hmm. know that there's an end to the uncertainty and that uncertainty has an end date, I think it's much more easy to manage. Living yeah. with uncertainty is one of the absolute hardest parts of cancer. Mm-hmm. And even then, I mean, don't get me wrong. We still, I held my breath until my oncotype score came back three weeks after my invasive um, ductal carcinoma because I you know, would have determined whether I had to do chemo or not. And mm-hmm. I was, you know, we, we popped a very expensive bottle of champagne when that oncotype <laughs> came in at 13, well yeah. below the number 20, which was like the go, no go number. Um, so that was, um, waiting for that was also really hard, not knowing exactly when that was going to come in. But again, I still think that living with uncertainty is one of the hardest things for cancer patients in mm-hmm. full stop. Mm-hmm. And yet if you, I think that if you ask the question, once you're diagnosed, okay, give me a deadline for when I have to make a decision on my treatment plan. Mm-hmm. I think most doctors will give you a deadline. Absolutely. Right? And yeah. say, okay, well, I think you can take about three weeks or, okay, you can take two weeks or, you know, right. or in the case of melanoma, you have no time. Like, yeah. okay, then I have no time. Then, then this is what I have to do. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I think to, just to close, I think a couple of things. One is I love your, the deadline idea. Um, And the other thing about second opinions, though, is second opinions, maybe third opinions. But when people get into like fourth, fifth, sixth, you know, just this never ending list. It's my husband has this thing he does where if he's making a purchase and it doesn't matter what the purchase is, it could be like a two dollar thing or it could be like a house. Mm -hmm. He (laughs) will perseverate about the choices for so long. Um, And the more choices, the worse it is. So actually, my family has coined this phrase. um, We've made a verb out of the word briefcase. So he briefcases because he did this thing with purchasing a briefcase. Like he stood in front of, (laughs) you know, not literally, but figuratively, like, you know, a wall full of choices of briefcases and just could not make a decision. One, because he didn't have a deadline. Like that that briefcase was not necessary for tomorrow. And two, he had way too many choices. So I think if you're going to briefcase your your second opinions, I think knowing this is my time frame, and yeah. also here's choice one, two, three, and you've al- you've already you know collated them, curated them based on all of these opinions. So that's enough. And I would say medically speaking, truly, I think three really high quality opinions when it comes to almost any diagnosis is plenty. When you get outside of that, it's just too many. And and it makes it much, much harder to make a choice. 
So and, um, you know what I'm going to throw at you also to add to all of that is quality opinions because yeah, totally. Facebook groups are not quality opinions. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> or your absolutely. Aunt Marge's bad experience <laughs> with her knee surgery, right? I mean, so those are the things where that's the other trick, I think, is learning what to listen to and what to screen out. Yes. And I've gotten better at it. But when you're a first-time cancer patient, that's overwhelming. And I do think right. that that is really, really hard. Uh, but I love this. I, three to me was perfect. I Once mm-hmm. I got that third opinion, I was at peace with it. Right. Um, and it I, is also important yeah. to make sure it's an odd number, right? Because I think yes. when you have three, like in your case, you know, two recommended, you know, not double mastectomy. One was recommended double mastectomy. So you kind of have a tiebreaker in there, which makes it a little bit easier. Like when you get two opinions and one says this and one says that, like, oh, like, how do you know? Um, so really great stuff, Liz. First of all, I'm so glad that you're okay after everything you've been through. Thank you. Can I ask you, how old are you now? I'm 50. You're So you're 50. You and I are about the same age. And how old are your kids? My daughter is 18 and my son is 15. Wow. So your kids grew up in your journey from the very beginning. They have watched- It's a part of their childhood is a mom that's been sick. My daughter wrote a beautiful, like- made me cry essay about it for her college exams. Do you hear that, University of Virginia? <laughs> We're still waiting. <laughs> oh my God, plug, absolutely. <laughs> wow. So so I think that's, that's a nice thing to end our episode on before I get to the other thing I actually okay. want to end on. Um, it, when, when you're a mom and you're going through stuff, whether it's, you know, healthcare stuff like this or, or just other things, trials and tribulations of life, I mean, our choices that we make and our approach to these things influence our kids and how they approach these things and how they handle them. So I think, you know, you grew up, you started out one kind of patient and by force, you became a different kind of patient, but your Mm -hmm. kids now have that whole perspective. So, you know, as a mom, I want my kids to struggle less than I do in every which way. So if your kids can make, you know, informed, well thought out decisions for their own healthcare, you've won as a mom, your struggle isn't just about you, right? I feel like, there, I mean, because I'm still here and I'm healthy and fine, I can say, <laughs> so again, caveat, 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 that I think that there have been more positives than negatives that my mm-hmm. kids have learned um, that they've learned empathy through all of this, that the world continues to turn when your family's in crisis. Mm-hmm. And I think it's made them more empathetic. So like if they're, if they have like a friend or a colleague or whatever, or a teammate, you know, that is having a bad day, they, I think into it, maybe something's going on that I can't see because they right. have had that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's amazing. I think my, they've both learned a lot more independence. Like they started doing their own laundry and helping make dinner a whole lot younger than I ever did. Right. Um, and that um, and seeing and understanding that they needed to help with the family dynamic. Like when I was really, I was having some kind of side effect. I was, I was very ill after one of my radiation bouts and my daughter just picked up a spatula and made pancakes for dinner. Like didn't ask, just did it. Mm -hmm. And like those little things, you know, are just amazing. And I think that's making them better humans. I hope, you know, absolutely. And so I think that that's a good lesson to learn, right? Like you said, like, you don't want them to struggle. I wouldn't sign them up for this struggle. Mm -hmm. But one of the benefits, right, is that they learn, they learned empathy, they learned self-reliance, they learned self-sufficiency. And I think also, they learned resilience, um, Mm -hmm. that they see me, and my son talks about this all the time in they see how, you know, you can get kicked down and you take a minute and then you get back up, you know, like Mm -hmm. that and things that you learn through sports and other ways too, but cancer can provide the same kind of gift, right? That if you at least accept it. And so I think that Mm -hmm. that has been a big part of our family dynamic. Very positive outlook to take. And so you mentioned side effects of radiation. And I think that's a really great segue because I want to leave our listeners with uh, 
your business. So as a result of your treatment, you launched a business. Uh, Tell me about what you do um, and who you do it for and how people can learn more. So um, working backwards in 2017, I was really struggling with radiation. I, you know, it's one of those treatments that people don't get pay a lot of attention to because chemo is worse, right? And I will acknowledge, yes, chemo is worse. But I really struggled and I was burned and tired and fatigued and looking for all the stuff that you need to kind of monkey through treatment that are not the things that are, you know, doctors can write prescriptions, but there's all sorts of stuff that you need that is non-prescription. Mm-hmm. Ice packs, lotion, lip balms, right? All those things. And the and so I um I thought, where is radiationrelief.com? It didn't exist. And so mm-hmm. I wrote a survey and the survey went down two paths. And the first path was for cancer patients to ask what kinds of things, what treatments did they go through and what kinds of items would they want and need when going through treatment. And then you ask people, if you haven't had cancer, have you bought a gift for a cancer patient in the past 18 months? And if so, what'd you get? And there was this huge disconnect. What people want and need are all (laughs) functional. The top five performing items on our list of like 50 things were lip balm, lotion, ice packs, fleece blankets, essential oils, which I'd never used. Um, The bottom performing items, the things that got one out of five scores that nobody wants, kicking cancer tote bags, kicking cancer coffee mugs, worry stones, inspirational (laughs) poetry, right? Those things all got the worst scores. Mm -hmm. And then you ask people what they're buying and it's mostly flowers and food and t-shirts, right? Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. thought, okay, we can do better. And so I wrote a business plan during the pandemic because what else am I going to do? And, (laughs) and I launched a business and it's gone through a couple different iterations. It's called thebombbox.com. It's B-A-L-M-B-O-X. So the bombbox.com. So bomb like soothing. And yeah. it incl- it's functional care packages for cancer patients. So we have a whole breast cancer section, chemo, radiation, just launched some men's care packages. And it's all data driven. I'm a big mm. believer in data. That survey that I mentioned, because it was over the pandemic, it went viral and collected almost 50, over 500 responses, which was amazing. Wow. Mm-hmm. And um, so statistically relevant <laughs> uh, tells you that people want functional things. And so our area special speciality is functional care packages. I get um, all emails all the time from various people trying to sell me pink crap to put in our packages. <laughs> and I say, no, it's not yeah. our brand. That's not what we do. And, um, and the results have been amazing. Um, We are bursting at the seams. We need a new warehouse. Like there's, and then the other really exciting part is we have part of this whole process. um, We developed some specialty pillows. So one is a seatbelt protector. So, you know, if you have, whether you have like a chemo port or radiation burns or even surgical scars, that seatbelt is really annoying. Like it just, Mm -hmm. the pressure of the seatbelt against you hurts. And so we have these really neat seatbelt protectors. They're these just kind of, peanut shaped pillows that the tension of the seatbelt will hold the um the pillow in place and it provides just enough like distance while still you know keeping your seatbelt on protecting Um, yeah and so um and so those uh are picked up by cvs.com and so we sell them wholesale to doctor's offices as well so that's another one and then the other is um, I love this. It's a side protector pillow. I'm trying to figure out how to get this. Um, mm-hmm. and so this is a um, it's like a a C shape. I'm trying to figure out how to do this with my. Uh, it's not working because I the background's I, a little tricky. I know yeah. I'm, the background here is my <laughs> my my not real office. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's a C shaped pillow that um here, um is here we go. It's a C-shaped pillow mm -hmm. that fits under your arm. And so one of the things, especially during breast surgery and even during radiation, the weight of your arm against your side of your Mm -hmm. breast, that friction hurts. And Mm -hmm. so having the pillow just scrunch under your arm is awesome. And I actually like this one. Um, because this skinny arm then doesn't get in your way and you have this really thick part in the back and it helps, Mm -hmm. especially when you're lying down to kind of get your arm off of your body. Um, and I love these again, also cvs.com as well as our website and some doctor's offices. So 
So I'm going to link to everything in the show notes. So thebombbox.com for care right. packages. Yep. Uh, you've got the seatbelt protector. You've got the C-shaped side pillow. Side protector, yeah. All of these things will be in the show notes. So to everybody listening, please just check out the bomb box. And we, unfortunately, every single person listening to this podcast knows somebody who has struggled with cancer. And, you know, I am guilty. I have bought so many flowers and so much food and so many, you know, cancer is not going to win stuff. Because, you know, people want to do something, but it is so great to actually know what people want and then do that. It's still doing something. It's just doing something more meaningful. Um, Liz, I can't thank you enough for being here, for sharing your story, for being so brave and so vulnerable. I've learned so much from you. Uh, to my listeners, thank you for being here. If you have had a terrible or a great medical conversation, I want to talk to you. Please email me, christine at christinemeyermd.com. Once again, our guest, Liz Bendit, the website is thebombbox.com. It'll be in the show notes. Liz, so great to meet you. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Are you ready to join our conversation? Just go to Facebook and search Christine Meyer, MD. Follow us to join 14,000 other people committed to creating better conversations in healthcare.